in the end, the majority said, well, we didn't have Java for smartphones before, and now we do. And so the, the effect on the market is it's good. It's good for Oracle as well, because it increased interest in Java. I find that level of logic to be really dubious because something the dissent also pointed out that Samsung's contract with Oracle dropped from 40 million to 1 million after Android was released. I don't think that's doing anybody any favors. I mean, if that's the case, then, you know, we've got serious issues of what the definition of favor is. Welcome to another edition of the Mintz Intellectual Property Podcast Exclusive Rights. I'm here today with Michael Grafe. He is a partner in the intellectual property group uh, here at Mintz. And specifically, he is a trademark and copyright attorney that specializes in both procurement as well as disputes. Uh, and we're here to talk about the Google v. Oracle case that just came out of the Supreme Court about a month ago or so. To me, it was uh, unnerving, but I'm not a copyright expert, so I thought I'd bring in Michael to uh, discuss the case. Welcome, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here, Ty. Let's just jump into this real quick. This is Google v. Oracle. I'm a life sciences patent person, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions about what this is and what this means. So why don't you give us a background about what the case is, sort of, sort of technically what the case is. So this case is about whether Google's API that it developed for Android was a copyright infringement of Oracle's Java API. So, so what's an API? Well, interestingly, an API is a set of pre-written instructions that allow programmers to more easily develop programs for a certain platform. Oracle had this API, Application Programming Interface, for Java that allowed Java programmers to develop programs for laptops and desktops. So for example, when a Java programmer wanted to compare two integers to see which one was bigger, all it had to do was type in one short command, java.lang.compare, something like that, and the API would do that for them. So it really facilitated the jobs of Java programmers in order to develop programs for laptops and desktops. So here Google came along and said, well, we want to allow those Java programmers to develop programs for smartphones. And we've made a platform for smartphones called Android. So we are going to make our own API for Android and we're gonna rewrite all of those instructions, but we're not going to rewrite those commands with which the programmers were already familiar so that it would make it easier for those programmers to develop programs for smartphones. Isn't that the very definition of copyright infringement under Section 501 of the Copyright Statute? Well, I mean, you know, what exactly happened here is that Google rewrote two and a half million lines of code, which are the instructions that actually perform those tasks, but they copied 11,500 lines of code verbatim which are the actual commands that the Java programmers were already familiar with, so as to encourage those Java programmers to develop apps for smartphones. Our, our APIs, I'm still having uh, trouble understanding because I'm, I'm a life sciences person, of course. Are APIs something that are sort of universally present? And if so, is an API unique to Java and, and Oracle? 
such that Microsoft has developed its own set of unique APIs that Java and Oracle don't have? Or does, does Oracle own the market, if you will, on all APIs? No, Oracle doesn't own the market on all APIs. Um, companies can develop their own APIs to allow programmers to more easily program using their platform. So essentially, they develop a set of pre-written instructions, and the programmers could call on those pre-written instructions in order to develop programs more easily for those platforms. But in this case, Google wanted to use as a springboard the Java API commands that the programmers were already familiar with in order to encourage them to write programs for smartphones. Okay, so an API, still breaking it down for me, an API is a computer code, correct? An API is millions of lines of computer code containing pre-written instructions. Okay. Uh, I gave you the example of uh, comparing two integers. Another one could be summing a row of numbers. Another one could be posting a graphic. Those all require potentially thousands of lines of code, but because those are common tasks, the API pre-writes all of that code, and all that the programmers have to do is issue a, a command in order to make the API execute that code. And so the programmers don't have to write the code to do those common tasks. Got it, got it. So it does sound to me like APIs are computer code. I guess my question is, I think I know the answer to this, computer code, that's, that's copyrightable. That's expressed in the statute, uh, US uh, statute, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, so then what's the problem here? It's a copyrighted piece of uh, authorship here. It was copied. I don't understand what the problem is. Maybe you can walk us through. Absolutely. So as you said, Todd, the Copyright Act specifically contemplates that computer code is, is copyrightable. It actually says a computer program is a set of written instructions that indirectly or directly brings about a certain result. So it is expressly contemplated as being copyrightable, provided it is a set of instructions that directly or indirectly brings about a certain result. So an API actually has two distinct parts to it. It has millions of lines of code that actually perform the tasks. And then in the case of Oracle's API, it had 11,500 lines of code that were simply the command structure, the commands with which the programmers were already familiar. So the first part, those millions of lines of code that actually do the work, that's called the implementing code. The 11,500 lines of code that is essentially just the command structure, that's called the declaring code. And that distinction became very, very important in this case. And actually, that's how the court decided this case. Both are technically copyrightable because both are a set of pre-written instructions that bring about a certain result. Arguably, the declaring code indirectly brings about the result because it asks the implementing code to do the work and the implementing code directly brings about the result. So in theory, both should be copyrightable. However, although that was a question that was put to the Supreme Court, is the declaring code of the Java API, which Google copied verbatim, is that copyrightable? The Supreme Court declined to rule on that. Why? 
because they found that Google's use of the declaring code, those 11,500 lines, was fair use. And that disposed of the case. So they didn't have to get to the, is it copyrightable? Isn't that backwards, though? Shouldn't they decide first that the uh, declaring code was copyrightable? And then if it's use, if Google did use it, then it was a fair use. Is, is I mean, I think the dissent sort of talked about that a little bit, like it's almost backwards there, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess if they had decided that it was not copyrightable, that would have disposed of the case. But they were looking to dispose of the case, right? So by deciding that it was fair and by essentially punting on the, is it copyrightable, they, they were able to dispose of the case and either one would have resulted in a ruling in Google's favor and the fair use one did. But as you said, Todd, the dissent specifically said that the majority's failure to actually examine and analyze whether the declaring code was copyrightable led it down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to talk about that? Yes, I would like you to talk about that. Uh, I'm just interested in the fact that the dissent seemed to spend a little bit more time on that when the uh, the fair use issue was dispositive. Yeah. Um, okay. So l- let's talk about fair use for, for a moment and how the court found fair use. There are four factors in the Copyright Act that are used to determine whether a use is fair. And actually, the majority started with the second factor. The first factor is the purpose and character of the use, but, but the majority started with the second factor, which is the nature of the copyrighted work. And they said that the declaring code is actually, in their words, further from the core of copyright than the implementing code. Why is that? Well, the implementing code is creative. It's how the program does the work. It's how the instructions are executed. But the declaring code is just really a set of commands. It's a structure. It is bound together with uncopyrightable ideas, such as structure and framework and a a file cabinet system. And its value lies not, according to the majority, in its creativity, but in the fact that it encourages programmers to learn the system so that they could use it in many different areas. And they could continue to use it in order to use Oracle programs that Google didn't copy, for example. But to me, that sounds like it's creative. If you're, cre- if you're, if you're making something that is accessible, user-friendly, that's encouraging others to use it, even though if it's functional, even I think even the dissent uh, chimed in on, you know, what ideas are not inextricably bound to the, the form of expression. So if you've created something that's so simple and so easy to use, to me, isn't that a hallmark of creativity that others would want to use that? Well, I mean, there is the argument that if something is so, if there's really only one way to do something and one way to express something, although the court didn't get into this, there's something called the merger doctrine, which means that it's it's then closer to an idea than an expression because an expression is unique, right? And there, there could be many different ways to express an idea, but if there's only one way to express an idea, then technically it's not copyrightable. The majority did not get into this, 
Well, in fact, didn't Microsoft and Apple create their own set of APIs? Uh, I think the dissent even says something about that, too. So there's more than one way. In fact, I remember this actually was enlightening to me because when I bought my first iPhone and it said Java wasn't available to work there, now it explains everything to me that, that they they created a set of APIs that wasn't Java compatible. So it seems like the majority kind of brushed over that, right? That there is actually more than one way to create this. Yes, that's true. And this is a point that the dissent made that that Microsoft and Apple were able to create their own APIs. Um, and so there is more than one way to do this, but still the majority focused on under the nature of the copyrighted work factor, the fact that this declaring code is further from the core of copyright and closer to an idea than an expression because it just contains commands that are well known to the Java programmers. So even though they had declined to rule on copyrightability, essentially the majority was doing it anyway by using this nature of the copyrighted work factor in order to sort of find that the declaring code was less deserving of copyright protection than the implementing code. So that was an important setup for them and the dissent criticized that. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that, but I certainly understand uh, that reasoning or logic. So thank you for explaining that to me. Um, why don't we jump into the next factor that they looked at? I think it was purpose character, that this, transform, this idea of transformation, is that right? Yeah, so this is really interesting because transformative use, if you look at the United States Supreme Court's last ruling, which was in 1984, it was, it was a case called Campbell versus Act of Rose Music, and that was about Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. And Two Live Crew had uh, done a parody of Pretty Woman and only used a few bars from it and was sued by, by Roy Orbison or his estate. And the, the Supreme Court said, well, no, I mean, Two Live Crew transformed the purpose of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, which was to be an entertaining song, and you turned it into a parody. So that's a transformative use. And, and that really, like, even though it's still commercial, you transform the original purpose. You did something which was not, you know, with the work, which was not the original purpose of the copyright holder. So like another case, you know, when Jeff Koons um, created sort of a collage and, and, and copied a photographer's sandals, uh, Blanche versus Koons. This, is, this was not a United States Supreme Court case um, as part of a collage. And. And the photographer sued Jeff Koons and said, you copied these sandals from my photograph uh, and you painted them. I own copyright in the photograph and that is, that is copyright infringement. And the court said, well, wait a minute, this collage is really just a, a commentary on, on consumerism, right? That wasn't the reason that, you know, your photograph had nothing, that wasn't the purpose of your photograph that was intended to entertain. And this is, this is used as a commentary on consumerism. So therefore it's a new purpose distinguish that from this case, where the purpose for which Oracle created the API was essentially to allow programmers to issue sets of instructions in order to make it easier for them to program in Java. And that's the exact same purpose for which Google used Oracle's API. So, so how is that use transformative? So this was a tricky one for the court, okay? And this was the first time that the Supreme Court has found a transformative use where the copier here, Google, is using the 11,500 lines, the copyrighted work for the exact same purpose. 
as was intended. And it's verbatim too, right? It's it's verbatim. Verbatim. Yeah. And so 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 what the court said here is it's it was transformative because it involved re-implementing the same code with which the Java developers were already familiar from programming Java for laptops and desktops to encourage them to develop to develop programs for smartphones. So it was essentially they stretched the meaning of transformative, not in the original purpose of the copyright holder, but whether the copying encouraged further creation by product development, maybe product development. And they said it's consistent with the objective of copyright law. They said copyright law is not necessarily to reward the copyright holder, but it is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. And by allowing Google to copy the code verbatim here in the smartphone environment, they were encouraging further development of programs and apps for smartphones that had never been developed before because these programmers were now more inclined to develop apps for smartphones if they were able to use the same commands, which, which they were already familiar from programming for laptops and desktops. So to that extent, it's transformative because it opens up a whole new avenue for development, and that's the smartphone world. Yeah, this this was, to me, this was the most troubling part of the decision for me. And I will be flat out and say, I think they got it wrong here. Um, I, I don't understand how you can take something verbatim, use it for its exact same purpose, and then say that was somehow transformative. This was a lot of mental gymnastics in my mind that they did to do that. Now, to me, the purpose of promoting the arts and the sciences is to you you do reward the in, the inventor or the author for that innovation, and the promoting part is when someone looks at that and says, "Well, his or her invention or authorship was protected. I'm going to create a new set of APIs, a brand new set of uh, things, a way to do, and now I know mine is going to be protected. It's not getting into new products. To me, the analogy is I, I might be able to write a book." but I can't produce a movie. That movie is a brand new product that I'm incapable of doing. So this, to me, this is chilling because now you can take this language used in dicta and say, well, an author of a regular book now might not have any protections on this because it's a brand new product and the product is a movie. Do you think you could go that far with this? That's what's troubling to me. Well, that's interesting. You you talk about that, and that that brings us actually to the next factor, which is the effect on the uh, of the copying on the potential market, right? Uh -huh. um, and I can answer your question and also treat that factor because the court said that Oracle tried and failed to use its Java API for smartphones. It it, it tried to encourage you know the community. Um, it tried to make a platform like Android for smartphones, but they failed. But Google succeeded. They developed Android. And so therefore, as according to the court, Oracle didn't lose anything. To the contrary, you know, they're saying Google did Oracle a favor by re-implementing Oracle's code for smartphones because it increased interest in Java. Okay. Now, the dissent said, well, the majority left out a really important point here, right? That just what you said, that Oracle could have licensed the code to Google for smartphones. They said, look, the author of a book, just like you said, doesn't need to know how to make a movie out of his book in order to be able to license the book to be made into a movie, right? And actually, in this case, Google had tried four times 
four separate times to license the code, um, the declaring code, um, the entire API, and failed. And then went ahead and just copied it anyway. Now they rewrote the implemented code, but they copied those 11,500 lines. So the, the majority kind of like, I, I guess, glossed over that point. But in the end, the majority said, well, we didn't have Java for smartphones before, and now we do. And so the, the effect on the market is it's good. It's good for Oracle as well because it increased interest in Java. I find that level of logic to be really dubious because something the dissent also pointed out that Samsung's contract with Oracle dropped from 40 million to 1 million after Android was released. I don't think that's doing anybody any favors. I mean, if that's the case, then, you know, we've got serious issues of what the definition of favor is. Google didn't do Oracle any favors by taking this code. That's what I'm sure this is what Oracle was arguing, taking this code, implementing it to where the value of their contracts with some of their vendors, Amazon also had a massive discount uh, in, in its uh, relationship with Oracle. How is that doing them a favor? What's interesting here is that the Java API, Oracle charged for that, all right? It didn't charge the programmers. They got to program for laptops and desktops. But as soon as like Dell or anybody wanted to put it in to, to a laptop or desktop, Oracle charged for the, you know, the hardware manufacturers to put that Java API in, right? And that was their, their revenue model. So for example, Amazon had a Kindle and, and Oracle charged Amazon for the, putting the Java API into, into the Kindle. And so, you know, the Java programs were able to be executed on uh, and programmed for on the Kindle. That's how Oracle made money from its Java API. Google came along with a completely different revenue model. They're like, we're giving away the Android API to any hardware manufacturer who wants, okay? How is Google making money? Google's making money because Samsung, for example, who takes the Android API for free, agrees to allow Google access to all that data from the Samsung phone. And Google uses that data to sell behavioral advertising. And that's the rest of, you know, the rest of that story. So, so Google's revenue model was, hey, everything's free. So Amazon, seeing that Android was free and the Java API, which Google had copied effectively, or the important part of the declaring code of which Google had copied, Amazon's like, wait, why should I be paying Oracle for the Java API when Google's giving the Java API away for free or the Android API away for free? And Samsung said the same thing when they had been paying Oracle for the Java API, but now here Google's giving them an Android API for free. So that's not fair. So therefore, as you said, Amazon got a 96.5% discount <laughs> from Oracle <laughs> and Samsung's license went from 40 million to 1 million because here was the exact same API effectively, although it was re two, 2 million lines of it were rewritten, but the exact same functions of the API with the 11,500 lines copied was being given away for free. So yeah. We already talked about market effects. And the last one was the amount of copying. Do you think this was important? Do you think this was relevant? I think the the, set, or the, the, the majority made a point, well, it was that, wasn't that much. It was only like 2% or even less than that, right? Right. Well, the majority acknowledged that, you know, the amount of copying isn't always determinative. It's basically whether it's the heart of the work. Right. And they, and they even cited their own decision in Harper and Rowe, which was Gerald Ford's memoirs, where 
where the Nation magazine had printed 400 words and they said, well, that was the heart of the work. And so that was not a fair use. Or they even cited like a one line, like he woke up from his dream and his dinosaur was in the bed and the dinosaur was in the bedroom. That could be the heart of the work, right? But in this case, in this case, the question is, well, are these 11,500 lines, which given that Google had reprogrammed the implementing code, which was 2.86 million lines, were these the heart of the work? They was, these were only 0.4%. And so the court couldn't help itself and say, we already said that these 11,500 lines, the declaring code, are far from the core of copyright. And when we say that, we're basically saying that copying them as 0.4% is more permissible since they're not really the heart of the work and their value lay once again in permitting programmers to make use of their knowledge and experience using the SunJava API to write new programs for smartphones with the Android platform. So really that amount- But couldn't you make, come on, Michael, come yeah. on, Michael. Couldn't you make the point that <laughs> the ease and simplicity and the almost u universal usage of Java makes it that those APIs make it. That's the heart of, of Java. The fact that it's so accessible to so many people, you know, the first four notes of Beethoven's fifth symphony, right? That's very accessible to everybody. And it's only four notes. Why isn't it that these APIs that are very accessible to all these programmers and developers out there. Why isn't that? Why does not that constitute the heart of the of the uh, of the code? Well, I mean, you're talking about the declaring code, meaning the commands. The, yes, the, yes, sorry, those, thank you. Those commands, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, look, that, that's an interesting question. To some extent, you know, Oracle was a victim of its own success that the programmers had learned these, and then the court sort of used that against Oracle in a sense to say that, well you know, it's just a command structure. It's not really creative. It's just basically you're issuing a set of commands which are, which, which are, that's not really expression, okay? Although they didn't go so far as saying that, they're saying that, that's inextricably intertwined with non-copyrightable ideas. That's actually what they did say, such as structure, file cabinet, framework. So it's, it's far from the core of copyright and therefore, and therefore, the value of that really lay in its ability to encourage further development, not in its expression like the implementing code. How does the industry respond? Like, what do you do if you're a developer, if you're a programmer, if you're a software company here? Could I just designate all of my code as implementing code to where I'm trying to sidestep Google v. Oracle here? Or... Is there an opportunity here for other developers to come in and just pick apart code now and say, well, that's probably API and the Supreme Court's already said I'm allowed to use that? No, I don't think so. Look, I mean, I think I think the declaring code is the declaring code. It's really the, the you know, it's the set of commands that that um, are the instructions that ask the implementing code to, to actually do the work in the thousands of lines. So you can't just say something is declaring code or is implementing code. Basically, the question is whether programs in the future that are simply a set of commands or that are inextricably intertwined with non-copyrightable ideas such as, you know, filing systems, such as command structure, whether those will be deemed to be similar to the declaring code in this case, 
whereby it would be fair to copy them as long as the copying encourages further creativity by others consistent with the constitutional purpose of copyright law to encourage and promote progress of science and the useful art. So we can expect people to argue in the future that their copying of, of software is akin to copying of the declaring code in this case, because A, the software they copied is similar to the declaring code in some way, and B, the copying encourages programmers to develop further programs. I think you can expect to see those arguments, Todd, by defendants down the road. What is the takeaway really for this, right? Like if you're a tech startup, this is good for you. Why is it good for you? It's because tech startups, they rely on previously developed code to develop new products, right? That's what they're doing. And everybody wants products to be interoperable and compatible. And, you know, the court here put a lot of emphasis on interoperability and compatibility, meaning that Java programmers, you know, they were programming for laptops and desktops, let them use the exact same commands that they know to program for smartphones. It's a whole new world. We want everything to be interoperable. Actually, that's what APIs do. They make things interoperable, right? And so without the ability to re-implement old code that already exists in a new area, tech startups maybe wouldn't be able to compete with established software providers, right? Uh -huh. So repurposing for new uses, you know, such as the one here, develop Java programs from laptops and desktops to smartphones, that could help tech startups. If we're relying on something that already exists, are we going to get new programming languages? Are we going to get more sophisticated programming languages? And the answer could be no, because we can just borrow what's at, whatever's out there. If that's the case, then this decision might have a little bit of a, of a negative impact on the promotion of the arts, if you will. Well, I mean, you could look at, I mean, I think there will be new programming languages developed. I mean, you know, like uh, the, there already are a Python, uh, you know, and there's APIs for that. And, you know, the question is, well, can we take the API for that and then use it in another way that the original copyright holder didn't exploit themselves? I mean, that was the whole thing here. Oracle hadn't exploited the Java API for smartphones and the court held that against them and said, well, look, here is Google coming and doing you a favor and exploiting your software in a way that you didn't yourself, right? Yeah. And of course, you pointed out the sort of missing piece there, which is, hey, they wrote a book. They didn't necessarily know how to make a movie, but that doesn't mean they don't get to profit from the movie. But that's for another day, right? That is, um, yes. <laughs> yep. I guess the one other thing I want to say here is that if you are licensing code already, another takeaway here is, maybe you don't need to <laughs> right if the code that you're if the code that you're licensing is like the declaring code in this api which is like a command structure then maybe it's fair use to copy it without a license right so and that also goes for open source software so open source software typically you can use it but you can't combine it with your own proprietary software without making your own proprietary software also open source, which nobody wants to do, right? But, but let's say that open source software is like the declaring code here. So then maybe you don't need that open source license and you can combine that open source software with your proprietary code without having to open source your own proprietary code. That's called copy left without being subject to the copyleft restrictions because that open source software is actually 
it's fair to copy it. It's like the declaring code. It's intertwined with non-copyrightable ideas. So you're going to want to review with an attorney whether the code that you're actually paying for today needs to be licensed. Well, that's, I guess, a benefit to a startup. Uh, my last question is, is what if you're a company who uh, is a licensor to code and your business model is not ad revenue, for example, like Oracle, is there a reason to be concerned uh, about your business model in view of this decision? Yes, I think there is reason, maybe not for concern, but for re-examination. I think that if you're a licensor and you have software, uh, you want to look at how you're protecting that software, right? Because this ruling could narrow the scope of protection for your software. So you should review with an attorney whether there's other forms of protection, like maybe patents or trade secrets, right? Remember, the Java API was not a trade secret. It was open. This is, this is why Google was easily able to copy it, right? It was open. Why was it open? Because it was open for developers to program for laptops and desktops. And then Oracle charged the hardware manufacturers, you know, it would have been Samsung, right? To put that API into its phone so that it could run all these programs. But for the developers, if we were programmers, Todd, you and me, we get Java's API for free. But then Google came along with Android and said, oh, it's free to the developers and it's free to the hardware manufacturers, right? <laughs> so, so I think, I think in this case, you know, if you're a licensor, you're going to want to review how you protect your software and, and, and give some scrutiny with an attorney as to whether you're doing it the right way. Very good. Well, uh, Michael, we could talk about this for hours uh, on end, actually. I think this is a fascinating subject. I think it has ramifications beyond uh, to me, the computer industry here, um, I just hope this doesn't bleed over into um, patent law somehow. So anyway, Michael, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate uh, your detailed analysis on this. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you at, at another opportunity. It's been my pleasure, Todd. Thanks. Bye-bye.